Our last time together in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at those last verses of chapter 11 where Jesus is speaking to the multitude and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus had been telling those who were followers of him that he is the Son of Man sent by God and if they would receive it they should have recognized him as their Messiah he had demonstrated his power he had proclaimed the word of God to them there was no reason for them to not be willing to accept this, this truth. That he was the one that had been promised by all the prophets who spoke of the one who would be seated upon David's throne as King of kings and Lord of lords over all Israel and the rest of the world. The Gentile world would worship him and the world would be at peace during his reign. He was the one who was to fulfill all of those things, but they would not believe. It's interesting that Jesus, in last portions of chapter 11 that we just spoke of, talked about rest. The idea of rest for the Jewish mind was centered around their worship of the Lord on that seventh day of the week known as the Sabbath day. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 where God spoke of His creative power in creating the heavens and the earth in six days and it tells us that on the seventh day God rested. And it's not as though God was tired from the work that he had been doing. Isaiah tells us that. He's not weary. He doesn't grow faint. He didn't rest because he was worn out. He rested so that he could enjoy what he had just completed. The work that God did on those first days of creation, each one of them ended with, he saw it and it was good. And then on the sixth day, after creating mankind and placing man and Eve in the garden, he sat back and said, it is very good. He was satisfied and he rested from his labor of work, but not in the sense that we would rest because we grow tired or weary of the labor, but because he wanted to simply enjoy that which he had finished doing. Great satisfaction came to the Lord on that seventh day. Keep in mind that it's Adam's and Eve's, or at least Adam's anyway, first day in his existence. God created Adam on the sixth day, and all during that seventh day, we can assume that Adam and God had fellowship one with another. After all, God is said to have made Adam in his own image. So that was a day of special days that the Lord set aside. He wanted the people of God to know that this rest that He Himself partook of is available to them also. Now, as far as the nation of Israel was concerned, that rest was symbolized with a sign. In the Old Testament, we find various things that God does with regard to the covenants that he makes with mankind. And in the covenants that he makes with mankind, he establishes that covenant by virtue of demonstrating with a sign that this covenant is specifically for this individual or for this group of people. For instance, with Noah. The sign that God gave to Noah was a sign of the rainbow. Because he wanted Noah to understand that a covenant was being made with God and Noah with regard to the fact that he would not destroy the earth. And the sign of the rainbow was a confirmation, a ratification of that which God had spoken to Noah. When you move forward to Abraham's time, 
You see, Abraham is also given a sign with the covenant that God had made with Abraham regarding the fact that he would be the father of a multitude. God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision. And that sign was given to Abraham as a reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham that all peoples through Abraham would be blessed. And then when you fast forward to the Mosaic Law, it is there after, by the way, of almost 2,500 years, that another sign is given to the people of Israel. God made a covenant with Israel, and that Mosaic covenantal law that was so necessary for the people of Israel to learn about and obey and to understand was ratified also through a sign. And that sign was the observance of the Sabbath. God tells Israel specifically in the book of Exodus, I give you this sign, the worship that was prescribed on that one day of the week, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, was to be kept holy as a sign between God and Israel. Now, I emphasize that because there are some who would argue that the Sabbath remains a day of rest. And it does remain as a day of rest. But it's a sign for the nation of Israel. It does not show anywhere in the record of God's Word where the church is obligated to observe that particular day to worship God. In fact, Throughout the New Testament, we find the gospel is written in such a way as to basically negate that aspect of worship. Because Jesus came in fulfillment of those things. Those things, Paul tells us, are a substance of reality. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that which was a substance from the Old Testament, including the Sabbath day worship. It was intended to be a day of rest. And the Jews faithfully observed that throughout their history and still do today. If you were to go to Israel, Orthodox Jewry is very, very apt to respond quite negatively toward you if you go into their communities and do something that causes them to think you are doing work on the Sabbath. I'm told that if you drive a car through some of the Hasidic communities, they'll throw stones at you because you're doing work. Combustion of your engine is work. They have a law. And the law is the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law says, you shall not do any servile work on the Sabbath day. So from sundown Friday night until sundown Saturday evening, you can do no work. No labor was allowed. That was a command of God to the nation of Israel. It is not a command to the church. In fact, if you look at the New Testament letters like Paul wrote about and also written in in other places besides what Paul wrote, there are instances that are referring to the fact that the church, even in the very beginning, met on the first day of the week. And the reason they did that is because it was considered to be the Lord's day, because we know that the Lord raised from the dead on that first Sunday And the church has observed Sunday as a day of worship ever since. Paul tells the Corinthian church, when you meet together on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, they were to take an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That is very, very true about the church history. You can't go to any of the writings of the church fathers and see where there was a concerted effort to change this. The church met on the first day of the week. John, in the writing of the book of Revelation, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
the first day of the week. He was worshiping God on that day. But Paul also says something of great interest to me, and I hope to you. He tells us in the book of Colossians that, look, every day is a day of worship. And he says, take no mind to those things like the new moon or the Sabbath day or any special holy days. None of that is of any concern to the church. It's good if you want to worship the Lord on those days, but it's not good if you insist that somebody else do the same, if they have other convictions about what day they want to worship the Lord. I want to worship the Lord every day, and I hope that's the case for all of us. But we come together as a church body to assemble together one with another in this place and other places throughout the world, really, on the first day of the week. Now, there are certain denominations who think otherwise. And I submit to you that I don't want to say anything against their decision to do so, except if they try to convince me that I'm doing it wrong and that they're doing it right. It's when they try to convince me or any of us that worshiping God on Sunday is a sin or worshiping God on a Saturday is the only way for true worship, then I've got an issue. That's not what Paul tells us in the New Testament. And we need to agree that we're not going to agree on that particular day of worship as long as they continue to insist on that. I'll continue to say, it's good for you, but I prefer this. So, the reason I bring all of this up is because of this issue of resting on the Sabbath day. Because what we read in chapter 11 at the end of that great chapter where Jesus spoke of the fact that He invites you to come, He invites you to learn, He invites you to take upon yourself His yoke, which is a light, not a heavy burden. His yoke upon you to learn from that experience of putting upon yourself that yoke which He alone can provide. It's a yoke that really is a yoke of freedom, not a burden. And the people of God, the Jews of Jesus' day, were under tremendous pressure by the leaders of the the Jewish history, tells us the Pharisees and the scribes were adamant about worship on Sabbath day. And they were not just adamant about resting on the Sabbath. They defined what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. And by making all of their statements with regard to that rest that they were supposed to have observed, it became a burden rather than an opportunity to experience the satisfaction of entering into the rest that God had provided for His people. They made it into a heavy load that nobody could ever possibly succeed in observing. So the law said, Thou shalt do no work on the Sabbath day. Well, they began to ask, Well, what does that mean? And so some of the leaders of Jewry through the years began to write their interpretations that became for them not only tradition, but ultimately very law that needed to be obeyed. Things like you can't walk more than 200 meters from your home on the Sabbath day because that would be constituted work. Ultimately, when in Jesus' day, they had developed 39 different categories of rules and regulations. And within those categories, multiple regulations that they had to observe in order to show themselves to be faithful to God's command, thou shalt do no work. For instance, you couldn't carry more than two figs because that was labor. That was carrying a load. There were many, many things that they wrote about that they said were obligatory for a good, faithful Jew. So those Simple commands of God in the Mosaic Covenant, which were intended to proclaim a time of rest, for them became a heavy laden experience every single Saturday because they did not want to 
overstepped the bounds that the Pharisees and scribes had set for them. That's why Jesus in chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel tells us, they, the Pharisees and scribes, tell you to do things, but they themselves won't do it. They put upon you burdens that you cannot bear. Peter also acknowledged that fact in the book of Acts, when the early church began to meet together and Gentiles were getting saved, a lot of the Jews began to say, now, those Gentiles getting saved, that's wonderful, but they've got to obey the Mosaic law in order to be true children of God, accepted into the family of God. And then finally, Peter and Paul, each of them demonstrated the error of that. But Peter stood in the midst of that first council of the church and he said, look, guys, Why do you try to put on them, the Gentiles, what we ourselves could not bear? Peter recognized that it was impossible for them to enter into that kind of rest that God had prescribed for them by observing all of those various commands that the Pharisees had put upon them. Keep in mind that men tend to develop traditions that are beyond what the Bible says. The expectations of the Bible are overruled by those traditions in many cases. Jesus himself spoke against the Pharisees and scribes on that very plane. He said, you make your traditions to be of greater effect than the very Word of God. And so what we are here today to do is to look at the Word of God And to see what does it really mean when the Word of God tells us, enter into rest. Jesus himself said that, I will give you rest for your souls. What does that look like? How is that applied? Well, chapter 12 talks about how it's not applied. Chapter 12 is going to begin with two examples of what the Pharisees tried to convey with regard to rest. But they didn't understand it. Not in the way that God intended. They built rules and regulations around this concept of true rest and made it to be nothing less than the most difficult thing to accomplish. And it created no rest for their soul. Psalm 95 says about the early days under Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the psalmist reflects on those days and he says to the people in his generation, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God was saying about his people, they were observing the Sabbath already. They knew that there was a command that God had given them that they were to rest on the seventh day. They were wandering in the wilderness all of that time, and on that seventh day they indeed did rest in their tents. But they missed God's intent, God's purpose, in this concept of rest. And they would not because they were rebellious. They did not enter that rest because of their rebellion, not because of their inability to observe the Sabbath obligation, That wasn't it at all. They were rebellious people. They'd gone astray in their own hearts. That's why they didn't enter the rest that God had provided. And the writer of Hebrews tells us very, very explicitly that that is exactly why they did not enter the rest, because if they had only put their trust in Him, they would have had that rest. And it had nothing to do with Sabbath day observations. It had only to do with the fact that God has said, this is what I'm expecting of you. And they 
took what God had said and twisted His words and interpreted all of those things that God had said and became adherents to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. They missed it. They didn't understand it. They couldn't figure out why things weren't working well for them. They thought it was because they weren't doing enough for God. And so they added more regulations and more rules. And they figured, well, maybe it's because we haven't done this well enough, so we need to add more to those things that have already been added, to the basic principles that God had outlined for His people through the giving of the commandments and the law through Moses. The 600 plus laws that are written in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, weren't enough to them. So they had to add volumes of rules and regulations. They made them into oral commands and also written commands. The Mishnah and the Talmud. They are available if anybody wants to read through them. They are multiple volumes of commands that were written after Moses in interpretation of what God had said. How sad. One of the things that I find to be so wonderfully true to me is that I can take God's Word and I can look at what God's Word says and I can't tell you that I understand all of it. None of us do. Please don't try to convince me that you are aware of every detail of what God has said and say, I understand it all. No. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. They're beyond our finding out. But He does reveal truth. And the revealed truth that He shows to us through His Word is precious to me. And I stand on His Word and I don't want to twist the meaning of His Word. It says what it says and I take it to be literal and I take it to be meaningful and important and helpful to live out my life in a way that pleases Him. And in doing that, I find rest for my soul. See, I'm taking that burden that, that Jesus said is a light burden. I'm putting it upon my shoulders knowing that He provided the yoke to allow me to do that. He provides the means by the Spirit of God who dwells in you and in me to carry that load without effort. It's not a burden for us. It's rest for your souls. So in verse 1 of chapter 12, I know that was a long way around where I'm headed today with this portion of Scripture, but verse 1 of chapter 12, Jesus is now with His disciples and He's going to be speaking to us about these things. And I hope that you see the importance of what He has to share. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they must have been hiding out in the fields as they were watching Jesus and His disciples. They saw it. This is on the Sabbath. They're all out in an open field, and they're observing the things that are going on with regard to Jesus and His disciples. There's only one reason for them to be doing so. They wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to see what they could do to bring some accusation against Him. So they're watching the disciples of Jesus and Jesus walking through this grain field, and then they suddenly see something that offended them. The disciples of Jesus actually took their hands along the grain of wheat or barley or whatever it was, and they plucked that head of the wheat. They put it in their hands and they rubbed it together to break away the chaff, and then they blew the chaff away, and then they ate the kernels. That's what they were doing. Listen, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What? What are they talking about? Where in the Mosaic Law does it say they're not allowed to take grain from somebody's field? Well, you might think, well, yeah, that's stealing, isn't it? Well, quite frankly, no, it's not. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it tells us there that that was what God allowed for anyone who happens to be going through the field of some other person, and along the way, that individual can take a handful of grain, just like the disciples were doing, and eat it, and there was no restriction on whether it was on the Sabbath or not. It didn't matter. As far as God was concerned, that was legitimate. You satisfy your simple need for food. And it was allowed under the law. But what they couldn't do was they couldn't take a sickle and harvest somebody else's field. Now that would be definitely against the law. But the disciples weren't disobeying the law of God in this. They were disobeying the commands of the traditions of men. Because again, what they were doing was work. They were taking the heads of the grain and they were doing threshing by rubbing the grain in their hands. They were winnowing by blowing the chaff away. You see, they were doing, in the minds of the Pharisees and scribes, servile work according to their understanding. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So, of course, Jesus has to respond, and he does. And in verse 3, it tells us what his response was. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus was saying, look, you may remember in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, the story of David entering into the holy place where the high priest resided. And David was on a mission. He wasn't yet king. Saul was king. He was running from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. So he and his men were escaping from Saul's hand and on their way, they didn't have any supplies with them. So they stopped in Nob where the high priest was, Ahimelech in that day. And they asked Ahimelech, do you have any bread here for us? For me and my men. And Ahimelech answered and said, no, David, we, we don't. Unfortunately, all we've got is the showbread. Now, the showbread was something that Moses had prescribed for the nation of Israel as part of the Mosaic law. And it was basically this. Twelve loaves of bread needed to be placed on the table in the tabernacle once a week. And at the end of that week, those twelve loaves would be taken off and 12 more new fresh loaves would be put on that tap table of uh, showbread. And the 12 that were just removed could be eaten by the priests only. That was prescribed in the Mosaic Law. Now here David comes along and says, Ahimelech, do you have any bread? Oh, I don't have anything else but the showbread that we just took off the table of showbread. And so Ahimelech said, if your men are clean, if they haven't had relations with women in the last three days, and I don't know why that that was the stipulation, but it was, then they can eat of that bread. Ahimelech the priest is saying, David, I recognize your need. As long as you're not defiled, you can go ahead and take this bread. I'll allow you to do that because I recognize that you have a need. And that need is greater than the command of God that Moses gave to limit the use of that bread for just the priests alone. So Ahimelech recognized that fact. David took the bread and he ate it with his men that were with him, and they were refreshed. Jesus is referring to that event. He said, have you not read this? And by the way, when he says that to the Pharisees, oh, don't you know that that must have really hit them like a ton of bricks? What are you talking about? We're Pharisees. We're scribes. We read the Word. We know the Word. Of course we've read this. Jesus, have you not read this? But the point that Jesus is making is, if you have read this, then you should understand something that is being spoken through this passage. God was overriding the limit of the law with regard to the showbread by a greater law. And Jesus is going to tell them, but before he does, he gives another example. In verse 4, he says, Not only that, but how is it? He entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, 
nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read also this, that in the law, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? How so? Well, keep in mind they're not to do any servile work. Well, what was the responsibility of the priests on the Sabbath day? They not only had to do the normal sacrifices that were prescribed under the law, but they had to double that up on the Sabbath day. They had to sacrifice twice as many animals on the Sabbath as they did every other day of the week. Now, that required a great deal of effort on their part. They were working in the temple on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, look, that was been, that's been done for years. You've accepted that. But there's no difference in what they did. They're not observing the Sabbath regulations, are they? They're doing work on the Sabbath day. How do you explain this? Verse 6 says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. That was a reference to himself greater than the temple. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Son of Man. And in other places, he referred to himself as one who was greater than Jonah. He referred to himself as one who was greater than Solomon. Here he's saying one who was greater than the temple. The idea that is being conveyed by Jesus is that he is Lord over all. And we'll see that momentarily as he continues his argument. But before I move on to that last statement that Jesus is about to make here, I want to point out the fact that the temple was a very, very important building to the Jews. The very first temple was built by Solomon. It was a gorgeous, wonderful wonder among all the the various things that mankind had done, considered one of the wonders of the world during that early time of Israel's history. It was a magnificent temple structure, and the Jews were very proud of that temple. But the Babylonians came along, and in 586 B.C. they destroyed that temple. Later on, some 40 or 50 years later, they rebuilt the temple again under Zerubbabel and and Ezra and Nehemiah during their time. When they were rebuilding the city, they also rebuilt the temple, but that rebuilt temple was very small compared to what had once stood on that holy mount. But it lasted that way until Jesus' day. And when Herod the Great had come to power, he decided he's going to make that second temple into something far more elaborate than it was. And so he began a building project on the temple that lasted some 40 years. But it never was completed because that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But while Jesus was on the earth, the temple stood. And you may remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem, there were arguments against him. They hated him. They wanted to do away with him. And one of the things that Jesus said about himself during that confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians in Jerusalem was with regard to himself as the temple. He had said, the temple mount where he was speaking, he had said, destroy this temple And I will raise it again in three days. Well, they thought he meant the temple that Herod had built. But he was referring to his body in the resurrection. The temple stood as a very significant, important component of Jewish worship. And there were times, as I've indicated, where there was no temple in Jerusalem. After 70 A.D., and until now, there still has been no temple in Jerusalem. But during Paul's day, Paul lost his life, was beheaded somewhere around 66 A.D. 
before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And Paul referred to the temple in his teachings, talking about the Antichrist who would come and desecrate the temple. Now, as far as Paul was concerned, Paul probably assumed that meant that the temple that was then standing would be desecrated by the Antichrist. Paul anticipated the coming of the Lord. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that the Lord is coming in the clouds for his church. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Paul expected the Lord's return while he was still living. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, we who are alive and remain. He would have said, they who will be alive and remain at that time. Paul anticipated the imminent return of Christ. Now, that didn't happen during his life. And the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. But if you fast forward to another 20 years beyond that, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he receives a revelation from Jesus Christ. And in that revelation, which he wrote down and we have as the book of Revelation, John describes temple worship. The temple had been destroyed in 70 A.D. Twenty years later, John is speaking as though there's a temple in Jerusalem. That can only mean one thing. There will be another temple built in Jerusalem. I say all of this to point out this fact. Jesus here is saying, One who is in your presence is greater than the temple. As important as the temple was to the Jewish people, the one that they were listening to at that time is the one who they should have respected as their Messiah, the one that they should have realized he is the one that has been spoken of by all the prophets, one who is greater than the temple of Of course, it had to be him. There was no other. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say this. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. His disciples were guiltless. They hadn't disobeyed the law. They hadn't done anything wrong. Because mercy was more important to God and still is than any of the sacrifices any of the rules and regulations, any of the obligatory things that the scribes and Pharisees tried to enforce upon the people of God, none of those were as weighty as far as God is concerned as the idea of mercy. Mercy trumps obligation every time. Verse 8 says, But the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is deity, proclaimed here in this one statement. Lord of the Sabbath. That means he has authority over even the Sabbath regulations. He is the one who offers true rest. And they need to understand that it is because of what he is, who he is, and what he has come to do, that they could have entered into that rest simply by believing in him receiving His promise of eternal life through the gift that He alone could give. But they would not. The second example that Matthew gives us is found again on a Sabbath day. And it tells us in verse 9, Now when He had departed from there, He went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked Him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? They wanted to trap him. I find that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, Luke gives us a little bit more information about this very same event. I want to read that portion here now so that you'll understand why I'm bringing this to your attention. It tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. So Jesus was invited to teach in the synagogue. 
And that's what Luke tells us he was doing on this particular occasion that Matthew is also recording, but Matthew doesn't give us that detail. He says, A man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. That's precisely what Matthew had said. But Luke goes on to say, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. That's what I want to point out to you, that Jesus not only heard them talking about whether or not he would heal that man, but Luke gives us the extra information that he picks the man out of the crowd in the synagogue and tells him, come on out here and stand in the middle. Now that's important because of what we'll see next recorded here by Matthew. So turn back to Matthew's Gospel. They had asked among themselves, and he overheard them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they were asking that because of one thing only. They wanted to accuse him of doing work on the Sabbath. So in verse 11 it says, Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Isn't that doing work? But which one of you would not do so for that poor little lamb? Wouldn't you take care of that poor little lamb? Wouldn't you be merciful to that poor little lamb? That's the point that Jesus is making. You know full well that every one of those Pharisees and scribes who were wanting to accuse him of doing something wrong on the Sabbath would have had to admit, yeah, we would do that for our sheep. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Now, some people don't think there's much more value in mankind than any of the other animal of creation. After all, we came from apes. So there's no reason to think that we should be of higher value than any of the animal kingdom. That's why saving the whale is far more important than saving the life of an unborn child. That's why the spotted owl takes more precedence over the well-being of the people who live in those regions where that particular species is supposed to be endangered. They have more concern for the sheep than they do for man. Jesus says just the opposite should be so. Is it not true that you have more value than the sheep? Therefore, it is lawful, he says, to do good on the Sabbath. You can't dispute this. No matter what you think about Sabbath rules and regulations, whether you're a Pharisaic legalist like they were or not, you have to understand what Jesus is saying here is so basically true, so important, so true and real and needful for us to apply. Be merciful. And in that mercy... You overrule any obligation that you think may be of greater importance. Because it certainly is not. Not in God's eyes. So after having said that, verse 13 tells us, He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Think about it. He had just performed a remarkable miracle in their presence. Granted, it was on the Sabbath day, but it was in their presence. They saw a miracle take place. Jesus had invited that man to come into the middle so that others could see. And that man was willing to step forward. And that's important too. You know, when Jesus wants to do something on behalf of his people. Oftentimes he asks us to do something that we might not be so comfortable doing. Step forth in the midst. You mean I have to be a public example? You mean I have to let myself be seen in the midst of all of the other believers? You mean, Jesus, you want me to stand in the middle of all of these people and admit that I've got a problem? That's basically what he's telling this guy with a withered hand to do. 
And I submit to you that that's something that Jesus is wanting to do in every one of our lives as well. If we have something that holds us back from really being fully committed to Jesus, fully believing in His ability to heal, to do miraculous things on our behalf, then we need to be willing to step forward and say, Yes, Lord, whatever you ask of me, I will do. And this man was such a one. He was brought into this place of being picked out among all the crowd that was there in a synagogue. And Jesus says, come forward. Yes, you, you, that's the one, you. Come on up here. Stand right here in the midst. Because I have something important to demonstrate. And when the man responded, if he might have been perhaps a little sheepish, perhaps not sure what to do, why he was being called forward. Perhaps he didn't have any idea what was about to take place. But his willingness to say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Then Jesus said, Stretch forth your hand. Wait a minute. My hand is withered. He's been unable to move his hand, perhaps at his side or perhaps in a position like this. Everybody could see he had a withered hand. Everybody could see that he couldn't use that hand. Everybody could see that he was crippled. However it might have taken place in his life, he had an obvious affliction that people would have known about. It was an embarrassment to him. And he stood before that crowd and Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. What's he to do? What if he had said, I can't do that. I've not been able to do that for 20 years. I, I, can't, I can't accomplish that because I don't have the power in me to do so. That's not what happened, is it? When Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, something in that man stirred. In his heart, there must have been a realization that this one who had just spoken those words to him knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could do what he was telling me to do even though I did not believe it possible. And as a result of his saying so, the man moved his arm forward. And as he did, that limp hand became whole like the other hand. This is a miracle that God performed instantly. And they saw every moment of that renewal of that man's hand into perfection. And instead of rejoicing along with all the other people, they left the room. They went out in a huff. They turned and they ran out the door and they said, we've got to do something about this. Obviously, this man who has just healed the man with a withered hand is a sinner. Obviously, the things that he is able to do, he's only able to do by the power of Beelzebub. Obviously, he is the enemy of God and we need to take care of this problem. And they decided then and there that the only solution was to destroy him. This is a turning point in Matthew's Gospel. Up until then, they were willing to at least listen to Jesus. They didn't agree with Him. And there were times when they thought perhaps that what He was doing was very bad for the people. They wanted to try to figure out how they could come against Him. Now they knew. Now they knew they had something that they could promote, something that they could emphasize around the whole of the nation. This Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus that you are following, he's a Sabbath breaker. And that for a Jew was blasphemy. That's why they wanted to kill him. Instead of embracing him as King of Kings, instead of letting him prove his lordship over them, over the temple, over the Sabbath, they choose instead to do away with him. They plotted against him how they might destroy him. How sad. 
But there are people today who do the same. They're still out there trying to do away with Jesus, aren't they? They're in the public places. They're in the educational system. They're in politics. They don't want Jesus to be known among you. They want none of His miracles to be experienced by anyone. And if they are, they dispute it. They argue that, no, that didn't happen. Just your imagination. There is no God. Jesus is just a man. Oh yeah, He was a good teacher perhaps, but He's just a man. He's not the Savior of the world. He doesn't have the power to forgive you of your sins. And what's sin anyway? Everybody is just as happy as we can be in the life that we are living. We're prosperous. We don't need Jesus. We don't need that crutch. We don't need that man who claims himself to be the very Son of God. They mock and they despise. They misquote the Scriptures to prove to the world around them that they know more than God does. And besides, there is no God. They're out there in great numbers and we are here in this room filling our minds with the truths of God's Word. Are we taking that Word to a lost world and we proclaiming this truth that Jesus is indeed Lord of all? Are we going forth and making the world around us to understand that there is precious little time left before He returns. And His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come unto a knowledge of Him. Are we participating in that work? It's not just about the Sabbath. It's not just about rules and regulations. It's about rest for your souls. Rest for your souls can only come through obedience to His command. You may think that that's more than you can handle. But the truth of God's Word is simple. Jesus again said very, very clearly, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, let it be so. Find that rest that only He can give. Come, Jesus said. Take. Learn. Find. Rest. The invitation is still there for all. And I submit to you that if you and I are willing to fully receive what He wants to give, we shine brighter than we can imagine His truth in our lives.